if we don't make these adaptations to the way that we're living on the planet, then we're going to take ourselves out and sadly we're going to take, you know, millions of other species with us. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we have the dynamic and outspoken Leilani Munter. Leilani and I spoke back in early February 2019. Leilani is a biology graduate turned race car driver and environmental activist. She believes it is essential for humans to adapt and evolve the way we're living to be sustainable and not to destroy the natural world. Leilani is an advocate for renewable energy, solar power, electric cars, the plant-based diet, and of course, animal rights. She sits on the board of three non-profits, the Oceanic Preservation Society, Powered by Light, and EarthX Film. Leilani is also the ambassador for Rico Barry's Dolphin Project and a patron for Population Matters. Leilani was featured in the 2015 documentary Racing Extinction. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on iTunes, please leave us a review. It also really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Welcome, Leilani, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into your life today and everything you're doing with your career, um, I'd love to learn about how you kind of discovered the vegan movement and how you became vegan. What's your vegan story? So I was vegetarian for many years before I went fully vegan. I went vegan in 2011. Um, But before that, I had been vegetarian for many years just as an animal lover and I just didn't fully understand how awful the dairy industry really was Um, and then when I found out about just the horrific um, animal cruelty that takes place in the dairy industry you know I I came to the realization I think that a lot of vegetarians eventually come to and that is you know, if you're trying to make the world a better place and and make the world a kinder place for animals and the environment, you cannot continue to consume any animal products, including dairy products. And so I went fully vegan in um, 2011. My husband is also vegan. And it's just been such a wonderful decision. I'm so glad that I made it. My only regret is that I didn't come to that decision earlier in life. How did you become a vegetarian? Well, what kind of spurred you on to do that? So I grew up around animals. My, um, my family had horses and I was, we would board our animals at, at farms. So I would be around pigs and cows and chickens. And so I was interacting with farm animals, I think in a way that a lot of people don't see farm animals like on a daily basis so they don't understand that these animals have the same exact need for attention and love and forming bonds and and that they have personalities in the same way that their pets do you know people I felt that it was so strange that people were you know knitting sweaters for their cats and dogs and then you know eating cows and eating pigs and chickens as if their lives didn't matter at all. And so, you know, it really came from a, a, I don't want to harm other things place. And I do actually remember when I was very young, I think I was around six, I was with my mom at a Wendy's and I was eating, this is in Rochester, Minnesota, where I grew up. And I was eating a hamburger and I was asking my mom, you know, I was such a little kid, I didn't understand what meat was like it was just food I asked her you know what it was and she said oh it comes from a cow and I said oh like in the same way that like that milk and butter comes from a cow because I had learned about um, milk and dairy at school um, because it's a big farming community and she explained no it's you know it's part of the cow it's like a piece of the cow. And I remember being completely horrified and angry that like, I didn't know that it was a dead animal before, because I think when you're feeding, you know, when, when you're a child, you just don't, under, you're just eating the food that people give you and you don't understand what it is. And I, I, it was such a traumatic event. I mean, I actually remember the exact Wendy's and what table I was sitting at. It was like one of those very early childhood memories of sort of being horrified by it. I didn't then, you know, learn enough about the dairy industry until later to make the full move to vegan. But I, I, you know, stopped eating meat and, and actually my mom was vegetarian for quite some time and my sisters have been vegetarian. So like it was something that was 
I was doing, but there were also people around me that were were also doing it. And I think you got the support. So you had people supporting you. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like I was, you know, shunned for, for being vegetarian or anything. Um, I mean, I remember my mom making her own, like right now we can go to the grocery store and just buy, you know, vegan ribs or vegan meats. And I remember my mom making her own gluten, we called it gluten ribs. So she would, she would make, she would take gluten and, and yeah, and make seitan and cover it with barbecue sauce. And I remember that being like one of my favorite meals and it was, you know, nowadays she could just go to the store and buy it, but she was making it at home. So yeah, I definitely had like a supportive family around me that, that understood and, and all were vegetarian at some point in their lives as well. Do you think, cause there's a lot of people out there whose families aren't so understanding and see this kind of change of uh, food as a, uh, something to fear. If you had a family who had kind of rejected your choices, do you think things would have turned out differently for you? Or, or do you think you would have kind of pushed on with it despite that? I don't think so. You know, my my husband and I, when we met, so we started dating in 2004. So geez, like 15 years ago. And he came from New Zealand. So he's from a country that's, you know, big on meat and dairy products. And he was not vegetarian when I met him. And then slowly over time, he started, he went vegetarian and, um, you know, I, I showed him documentaries. I think the one documentary that actually pushed him over the edge was in fact not a documentary. It was a an acting film, a normal feature film called Fast Food Nation. But in Fast Food Nation, they actually show some real footage from a slaughterhouse. And there's a scene in the film where you, you see like a garbage can and it's full of like the heads of the cows and their eyes are open and they're showing their big, you know, brown eyes with those beautiful eyelashes. And it's just, it's a heartbreaking image and it's real footage. And I remember getting up because it was so disturbing to see that. But the very next time that we were out, he ordered a veggie burger and he used to, he used to get like a chicken grilled chicken sandwich and I would get my veggie burger and he said, make it two veggie burgers. And I just, I was so excited. I wanted to jump up and down. Um, but I was like talking to myself in my head saying like, stay calm, don't make a big deal out of it. And then I just couldn't resist. And I asked him, you know, what, what made you switch to the veggie burger? Was it the cow scene in the film? And he said, yes. And so that was all we said about it. And then he was vegetarian. And then when I went vegan in 2011, he went vegan with me so that by then he had learned a lot more, obviously a lot more vegan documentaries had come out and we watched all of them. Yeah. It's just such a great decision. We're both really happy that we made it and trying to spread it to our friends as well. Go vegan. I'm giving up on you. The vegetables I would have cooked for you Sorrier things didn't get to you Go vegan, I'm giving up on you What's quite interesting about when people make the switch is that we go from one way of being and thinking and turning around 180 degrees, especially people who are omnivorous, you know, who've eaten meat their entire lives. I grew up on a farm. I was around animals. And of course, I loved animals. I had a cat. I had a, had a, had a, a mouse and pigeons and all kinds of animals. But I never really thought about it. I never thought about the fact that, you know, these animals are sentient feeling beings just like we are. Right. And I love some of them, but I eat others. Mm-hmm. And it was very strange. And then obviously in the UK, he, I moved to the UK from Zimbabwe where I grew up and I was never really exposed to any vegans or vegetarians. I mean, so you obviously watch these watch these films and kind of you, you absorb this information. Were you surrounded by any vegans? Did you have people who, because obviously vegetarianism and veganism are very different. Vegetarianism is often kind of just uh, what you eat. 
Uh, a lot of vegetarians still wear leather and silk and stuff like that yeah. without realizing or even thinking about the uh, the implications of what it is that they're buying. So at what point was there that shift in your mind of realization that you're joining or becoming part of what is now a global movement? Yeah, I you know, I live in North Carolina, so there weren't a ton of <laughs> vegans in this area. <laughs> but um, but I was around a lot of people, you know, for my work, I did a lot of traveling. I started to volunteer for Rick O'Berry's Dolphin Project back in 2010 um, after the Cove came out. Um, so I started to get more and more immersed in the animal rights world. And I was already, you know, very involved in the environmental activism. So I had, you know, lots of trips where I'm out in California. I was, I started working on racing extinction in 2012, um, which is the second film from the Oceanic Preservation Society that made the cove. And, um, you know, Louie was vegan and he actually put a note on the door of OPS at some point, their offices in, in Boulder, Colorado, that just said, you know, if you have any animal products inside of the OPS headquarters, you have, you know, 24 hours to remove it and no animal products, you know, should ever enter the front door ever again. So I love that Louie was sort of taking a stand, even though there were people at Oceanic Preservation Society that were not vegan. Um, he made our sets completely vegan. So the whole time that I filmed on Racing Extinction from 2012 to 2015, all the catering to the sets was all vegan food. So I did have like a support system of people that were like me that I work with, even though the place where I came home to hang my hat in North Carolina wasn't a hugely vegan place. But there is, you know, there is like a vegan, vegan drinks where people get together once a month and they've got like a get together for all the vegans in Charlotte. And um, there's a few vegan restaurants here. I mean, when I moved here in 2002, there were none. And I think now there's like four or five fully vegan places. Um, we just had a vegan barbecue joint open up last year by our house. Um, that's like a fully vegan, like uh, barbecue sandwiches like pulled pork, but it's all vegan and they have like mac and cheese and vegan jerky and vegan coleslaw. And, um, you can now buy it in the stores. So there's, uh, there's a lot of change that's happened here as well. And I've had actually quite a few friends that not by me trying to change them or like actively, lobbying them and being like, you have to watch this documentary, you know, just them being around me and eating the food that I was eating and seeing, you know, that I was making the same kind of food that they make. It's just that if my recipe had any sort of a chicken or a meat in it, it was plant protein meat, you know, it was vegan meat. And, and they kind of saw, oh, like she's not eating like nothing but salad. She's eating the same stuff that I do, you know, and I have people try my vegan cheeses that I get. And so w when people are exposed to it and they realize, wow, this is really good. I can't even tell that this is not me or not cheese. I mean, I remember our engagement party, which we would have had in um, 2008, we got married in 2009. We had a bunch of people at our house. A lot of them were, you know, acquaintances from my husband's work and they maybe were not aware that we were vegan or actually at that time in 2008, we would have just been vegetarian. I remember we had all these vegan, you know, uh, meats, like I had taco meat, like the ground beef and it was, you know, a vegan meat. And we even had corn dogs that were vegan corn dogs. And I remember some of the people eating it and one of the guys looking at another guy and saying, you realize what you're eating, right? And he was like, what? It's a corn dog. And he's like, it's not a corn dog. This is a vegan household. You're eating, you're eating like a tofu dog. <laughs> and the guy just kind of like looked at it for a second and then like looked back at me. He's like, I don't care. It's awesome. It tastes great. And um, we were also grilling out like sausages and that those were so realistic. I remember somebody actually didn't believe us that it was not real meat. And I had to take the um, 
the container, the box that it had come in out of the garbage or out of the recycling to show them like, no, look, this is the ingredients. Like you're eating, it's completely plants. I know it tastes exactly like meat, but it's made out of plants. And so I think that changes people a lot. I think when people realize that they don't have to give up these comfort foods, because I think food is such a, that is something that's built into us from such a young age. And so we crave those things that we have. Like I still have macaroni and cheese in my fridge right now. It's a vegan macaroni and cheese, but that's something that I ate as a child. So it's like a a comfort food for me. Anything they can do, we can do vegan. Exactly. (laughs) I I even, my husband for my birthday, I just had my birthday on Monday and uh, he made me a vegan cheese fondue and it was absolutely fantastic. And so yeah, everything that they can eat, we can eat a vegan version of it. And I think once people see that, I think it really opens them up to uh, becoming more friendly about it and, and realizing like, oh, she's not asking me to change what I like to eat. She's just asking me to change the ingredients of the things that I love to eat, but I can still have all those things. And that's why we did the whole outreach at the racetrack, you know, giving them vegan meats because that was what really shocked people when they took a bite of the burger and it tasted just like a burger but they're at the vegan tent like how is that possible and that really opens people up because you're not asking them to sacrifice anything they all of a sudden realize like oh I could be vegan and eat all the stuff that I eat now and I played folks over knives It changed most of my friends But you felt nothing at all And we Almost got in a brawl You're still learning to laugh So I'll try not to judge before we talk about the burgers, uh, for the listeners who may not know, you're um, some of some of my friends have said that you're the vegan hippie chick with a race car. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell, tell, tell us a bit about how did you end up a race car driver? Because you don't get to meet race car drivers every day, especially not vegan ones. So how did you end up in, a, in doing that? So I started racing um, in 2001. I had a bucket list that I started in high school, and um, I was going to college. My degrees in biology specializing in ecology behavior and evolution from the University of California in San Diego. And um, I was going through my bucket list. A lot of things on my bucket list were things like fun things that adrenaline stuff, like jumping out of an airplane. And one of them was to drive a race car because I was always getting in trouble for speeding. And uh, (laughs) I just wanted to feel what did it feel like to be on a racetrack and like be able to take a car to its limit without any danger of like getting pulled over or getting in trouble. And um, I was really just going to go for the day. I was the only female driver there. There were probably like 40 drivers and I was the fastest car on the track. I had a race team owner that like a local race team owner came over after seeing me drive and he was kind of like who who are you here with like what are you doing here and I was like oh I'm here by myself and he was like that's kind of funny usually when women are here at the racing school it's because they've been like dragged by their husbands or their boyfriends and they don't even really want to be here and I was like no no I've always wanted to drive a race car and you know so I saved up my money to come here And uh, then he was kind of like, you know, I think you should, if you have any interest at all in becoming a driver, I think you should pursue it because you are the fastest car and there are very few women in our sport. So like you've got a natural inclination for speed. And even though you don't have your own money to race because you're a woman and that's so unusual in our sport, you might be able to find sponsorship. So that was 2000. And then I spent the next nine months looking for a sponsor. And my first sponsorship was just to run at the local short track in San Diego. And I ran my first race in summer of 2001 and have been racing ever since. So 18 years of racing. Incredible. And what, what is what is it about being on the track that you love? Like what is what draws you to it? Oh, there's an incredible I mean, I just raced Daytona a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's a you kind of go into this other zone where there's nothing but me and the race car. 
everything else kind of fades away because you're going 200 miles an hour. You've got other race cars inches from you and you need to be like 100% focused where the rest of the world is sort of tuned out. And, um, and I really enjoyed that. And I also, you know, it was also a bit of a challenge because there were so few women in our sport. So there were a lot of people sending hate mail my way and saying women can't do this. And so there was also really? a wow. bit of, Tell us about that. Why? Why do you think? Why do you think people are threatened by a female race car driver? Uh, I think you know because for so many years it was a male sport, and there were you know there's only been a handful of women ever race on the top levels, and so um, you know for most of my career when I was on the track, I'd be the only woman on the track. I mean, I remember my first race when they started the race and the guy had to change the words of the starting gentlemen, start your engines. And he said, lady and gentlemen, start your engines. And like, just the fact that he had to change, you know, the words to start the race, like gave me goosebumps and made me feel like, ah, like I already won just like being on the starting grid. I've won. And so there was an element of like wanting to prove that, that women could hold their own in a sport that's mainly men. And and then, you know, I kind of used the hate mail as like fuel for my fire. It made me want to prove them wrong. So it backfired. Like if they were trying to get me to fold up shop and go home and quit racing, you know, it didn't work. It made me that much more determined to show them that they were wrong and that I could hang with the guys. It was around 2006 when an inconvenient truth came out that I really got uh, fired up about, you know, using my race car as sort of an, a billboard, you know? So I look at it as like a 200 mile an hour billboard that you can advertise whatever you want. Most race cars are advertising products and trying to sell you something but I wanted to sort of try and use the race car to send messages to get people to change their behaviors or to think about the things that we're doing to the world around us. If you look at the 10 hottest years ever measured, they've all occurred in the last 14 years. And the hottest of all was 2005. scientific consensus is that we are causing global warming. I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States of America. So that was the year that like I started to use my car to speak out specifically about humanity's impact on the world around us, the animals around us, our ecosystems. You know, obviously there's 7.6 billion people on the planet right now. We're adding about a billion people to the planet every 12 years. Um, the population has nearly doubled in my lifetime. It was 4 billion when I was born in 1974, and we're now approaching 8 billion. So our day-to-day -day decisions of, of what we choose to buy and to put on our plates to eat and to drive, all of those things have a huge effect because you're multiplying them by billions. So that was when my life sort of changed and I started to switch over to like, how can I use this ability to talk to people in the sport about these other things that I think are truly the most important issues of our time, but get it to the people that need to hear it through a race car. That's when I started to use the car sort of as a, a tool for my activism. Incredible. And you mentioned about burgers and well, feeding. Well, I think, you, did you say burgers? You said um, feeding people on the track. Um, you did something with Vegan Strong where this, I think there were like 30,000 people at an event. You were feeding people Impossible Burgers. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So I, um, I had this idea come to me a few years ago. I think it was like 2014. I was running a race. I had gotten vegan chicken wings. Um, my practice got rained out and I went across the street to a place called Yard House. It's, it's sort of a big sports bar and it's a chain in the United States. And they have a whole section of their menu that is using Gardein products, which are vegan meats. And so they have 
probably 10 or 15 items that are vegan on their menu. And so I went across the street and I bought for my whole crew, which there's like four race cars, four teams. It's probably like 50 guys, um, vegan chicken wings. And they were all kind of like, Oh, what, like, what is it? What is it made out of? Like they were scared of what I was going to bring back to them. And I was like, just trust me. Long story short, they love the chicken wings. They eat all of it. None of them can believe like, how do they do that? It tasted just like chicken. I can't believe it. And some of them even like a couple weeks later texted me and said, what was the name of the company that makes those chicken wings? I'm going on a a camping trip with my buddies this weekend. I want to bring the vegan chicken wings. And, you know, that was like my, my tire carrier that goes over the wall. I was just like, wow, this is amazing how just buying one meal for these 50 guys and some of them are already switching to vegan meat. So my dream had been for a long time to do that, but on a large scale, you know, at Daytona, there's like a hundred thousand people there. So I uh, pitched it to every vegan company in the world and they all (laughs) said, no, all of them said, NASCAR is not our demographic. They all just slammed the door in my face and I've almost given up on the vegan car because I'd been pitching it for years. Um, Really since 2011, I'd been pitching it. And then back in 2016, I was given an award at the Animal Rights National Conference for the Vegan Athlete of the Year. And I talked on stage for a moment during my acceptance speech about this dream to give away vegan food to the NASCAR fans. And like two weeks later, I got a phone call that, you know, somebody wanted to help me do that. And so in 2017, in February, we debuted the first ever vegan themed race car in the world. It was the vegan powered car. And we had a big tent and we gave away Gardein vegan chicken wings um, for like 10 days at Daytona. And then we returned and did the same thing at Talladega Super Speedway in 2017. And then last year, um, we made the vegan strong car and we ran eight races. And at five of those races, I had the vegan strong tent. We gave away the Impossible Burger, actually with Miyoko's um, Miyoko's butter. So we toasted the buns with oh, Miyoko's wow. butter. And then we had Follow Your Heart Thousand Island Dressing. And we had... Um, a vegan cheese from follow your heart cheddar cheese and then we put like lettuce tomatoes like the full hamburger kind of scene but with the impossible burger the fans were coming back for seconds thirds fourths. i had one of the nascar media people come over to me and say your tent is consistently the most popular tent in the fan zone like this is amazing um at one of the tracks it was really hilarious at pocono international raceway in pennsylvania We had our vegan strong tent right next to the Johnsonville sausage tent. And the Johnsonville sausage tent was just, nobody was there. It was completely empty. And I consistently had a line of like 30 to 40 people waiting for the Impossible Burger. So it was really well received. We gave away over 30,000 vegan burgers. I mean, I've had fans send me pictures uh, through social media of like their uh, grocery carts full of vegan meats and cheeses saying like, since I came through your tent, I started buying vegan meats and cheeses and it's really amazing how you you don't realize how something as small as just offering somebody a free, you know, bite to eat can can really change their behaviors. It's incredible. And food is really the doorway to the conversation. I think a lot of people who first become vegan, they become very angry with what they found out and they kind of channel that anger at others. Mm-hmm. And it's justifiable, you know, when you spend any time in a slaughterhouse or on a factory farm, it's very easy to get angry because, you know, most people love animals, don't they? And they feel an injustice in their heart and they want to go out and kind of, you know, spread this message. But really, ultimately, I think food is the best way to change hearts and minds because most people don't want to hurt animals. They don't want to cause suffering. So when you show them or give them something that's tasty, it's uh, available, it's affordable, most people are going to make the switch. I mean, the, the Impossible Burger or even the Beyond Burger mm-hmm. is, is available in you know in most of the Western world now. And I think I really, really hope we can keep pushing forward with this these kind of alternatives because I think it just makes it easier for people, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, here one of one of the the big ones that we have in the stores here is called Gardein, and um, they have frozen um, food of just about 
any kind of meat that you can imagine, fish fillets and, and pork bites and beef tips and any kind of meat that you previously cooked with, you've got this wonderful vegan um, version of it. And then I just saw a story yesterday about a new vegan tuna that has come out and is apparently nationwide in all the whole foods here. So I haven't gotten a chance to try it yet, but it had like three different kinds of flavors of, of a vegan tuna. Yeah, we covered that oh, actually. I think it's, what's it called? It's called Good Catch. Yes. And I, I feel like every single time I go to the store, I see new vegan milks or new vegan ice creams. Like there, it's just, it's exploding and it's amazing and awesome to see that. And every time you see a new vegan product, you know, like less animals are going to be killed. More people are, are signing up for this. And I feel like someday, you know, same with electric cars. Like I've had an electric car since 2013 and I'm starting to see more and more Teslas on the road and Nissan Leafs and Chevy Bolts. And I, I feel like eventually it's going to be like weird to own a gas car. Like people are going to drive by with a gas car and people will be like, oh, that's so weird. I can't believe people still drive those things. And it's, I feel like it's going to be the same way with veganism. Like if you see somebody that's eating meat, you know, you're going to be like, oh, that's weird. Do people still like do that? Though, yeah. But... Yeah. It'll be like a taboo, like yeah. a bad thing. Like mm. there'll be like a meat mm. section that you're relegated <laughs> to go eat your your meat in because nobody else wants to be around it. On on the topic of meat and its impact on our environment, obviously you're a passionate environmentalist. You know, you've obviously got a degree in biology. So the understanding of kind of the natural world is a big part of who you are as a person. How much is does that inform your life and how, how do you work that into your activism on a day-to-day basis? Is this something that you are going to continue because obviously you were you're heavily involved in racing extinction which is an incredible film which reached 35 million people globally in the discovery channel which is if anyone's listening who hasn't seen it please go and watch it it's a fantastic film how important is the environmental side of things to you because obviously driving a car and kind of also working with um supporting tesla do you want to talk about how important is it for us to be sort of pushing our entire economies away from these fossil fuels and obviously animal agriculture. I mean, the future of life on earth depends on us doing that. If we don't make these adaptations to the way that we're living on the planet, then, you know, we're going to take ourselves out and sadly we're going to take, you know, millions of other species with us. We're already losing the coral reefs. There's so much forests. There's so many ecosystems and animals that are going extinct every day that blink out that you don't even read about because they're not, you know, a famous species or a species that people know about. It's happening every day. I got an electric car back in 2013. Um, in January 2014, the solar panels went up on my roof. So my my house and my car completely powered by sunshine. Um, I've done over 83,000 miles now on my Tesla. Um, so I've saved a lot of money in gasoline. Um, but I've also, you know, been getting that electricity from the sun. So that's sort of the perfect scenario, right? Like it's been my dream for, for years. Did you say 83,000? Did you say 83,000? 83,000 miles. Yes, you've been... You've been around the earth a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and completely, at least when I'm charging at home, you know, the car is completely powered by solar. Um, so I'm literally driving on free electrons that land on my roof every day from the sunlight. I mean, that's the kind of the cleanest way that, that you can be. But even, even if you just get an electric car and you don't do the solar, um, you're still, the car's getting cleaner and cleaner every day because as solar goes up and wind farms, um, the grid itself is becoming cleaner and cleaner. So your electric car gets cleaner and cleaner as the grid goes on, whereas a gasoline powered car is just going to be dirty and it's going to be dirty for the rest of its life cycle. Um, So electric cars, solar power and veganism are the three things that the solutions that I really feel the most excited about. I feel like there's a lot of momentum behind all of those things. I feel like they're trending in the right direction. And um, there was actually a study done in 2010 um, by a group of scientists that wanted to figure out if there was a tipping point for ideas. And they found that if just 10% of society has an unwavering belief in an idea, it's actually inevitable that the majority of the rest of the society adopt that idea. And so I think that one of the scientists that worked on the the study said that 
you know, it's amazing. You'd kind of watch the idea really struggle very slowly to make it to that 10%. But once it hit 10%, it kind of spread like a wildfire. And I think that we're close to reaching that 10% tipping point with veganism and solar power and electric cars. The one thing that people aren't talking about, which is what I'm concentrating my next, uh, documentary, um, with OPS on is, uh, population. So human population obviously is driving the driving force behind all these other environmental problems that we have. Climate change, ocean acidification, loss of biodiversity, habitat destruction, pollution, overfishing. All these things are driven by the fact that we have a net growth of like a million people new added to the planet more than die every four days. So that's, uh, I mean, that's a very daunting thing. So you can, you know, while in I'm excited about solar and electric cars and veganism becoming mainstream. At the same time, I'm concerned that the explosion of the numbers of people that we're having is so great. Are we making this adaptation fast enough to make up for the number of people that are being added to the planet? So I am child-free by choice. My husband and I have chosen not to have children, and that was because I had a biochemistry professor back at UC San Diego that one day I went into class to read about biochemistry, and he just told us to all shut our books, and he showed us a film about population. And I've been concerned about it ever since, and I feel like it's the least talked about of, of the problems. I retired from racing two weeks ago at Daytona, and I'm focusing... Yes, that was about to ask you. <laughs> Yeah, so now my now 100% of my focus is um, making this film with Luis Ahoyas and the team at Oceanic Preservation Society about human population and how this is an issue that we have to talk about for so long. It's been swept under the rug because it's an uncomfortable conversation to have. But um, truly, if we want to solve our environmental problems, we cannot keep growing our population as if, you know, we have an unlimited Earth because the Earth is finite and we're discovering that. Climate is controlled by the ocean. And we're dumping so much carbon in the oceans, it can't take it anymore. We found this guy, Mr. Lee. He's culling and processing whale sharks. Nobody ever gotten a camera in there before. We run into people with badges and uniforms, strip off all this stuff, throw it over a wall. Is it a basking shark oil? Jesus. This world is absolutely insane. Wildlife trade is second only to the drug market in the world. It's that lucrative. We need a getaway driver. And I knew one of the best. I love it. To create a heist, to hijack the world's attention. I think we want to put in an order for a car today. Excellent, we'll take one. Blow the lid off this place, right? There's been five major extinctions in the history of the planet. This may be the sixth. When you're talking about losing all of nature, it's not a spectator sport anymore. Everybody has to become active somehow. The idea is to inspire people. Imagery is very powerful. If you can reach people, you can change them. We can make this happen. We need people to understand it's worth doing. People that have been in the business that don't even bother. But better to light one candle than curse the darkness. There's so many people who sit back and say we're screwed. But you know what? That one candle, maybe someone else with a candle will find you. And I think that's where movements are started. With human population, I think there are two camps, aren't there? There's one side that says there are definitely far too many humans. We need to come back, cut back. And there's another camp that says there are a lot of people, but it's not how many of us they are. It's how we live. It's the way in which we consume resources. Human society or the capitalist society is essentially set up in a way where there is no perception of uh, the finite resources of our world, whether, whether it's the 800 million tons of plastic that we produce every year I think it's 800 million. It's a ridiculously high number. And the fact that we, we live in a world and a culture where it's, it's, everything's disposable. There's no, that we're moving towards a world where nothing is reused or recycled or re, re, reconstituted into our society. Everything is kind of instant, isn't it? Instant movies, instant relationships, instant products on Amazon. Because some people say that, don't they? They say the earth can support 50 billion people, but it could never support it on the current lifestyle and the way we exist. 
Do you have any thoughts on that idea that it's not about how many of us, but it's how we're living? So that's the problem. I, I, I think you have to look at the combination of the two things. We have to look at both the numbers, you know, and of course, how those people are consuming goods. So uh, there was actually a study, a year long study done at Cornell University by the ecologists there. So I don't know who these people are saying we can have 50 billion people on the planet, but I would definitely disagree with that, as would the Cornell University professors that worked on this study that, you know, they came to the conclusion that the carrying capacity of the earth should all the people on earth be living in relative prosperity with running water and electricity and access to shelter and, you know, be living. I think we all want to see a world where everybody is living in, in some somewhat comfort um, without being extravagant, but having those basic needs all met, the carrying capacity was 2 billion. Um, so that means we've already overshot the runway by 5.6 billion people. You know, there, there is a great website that's called um, Earth Overshoot Day or Overshoot Day. And yeah, where it kind of calculates from the beginning of the calendar year, how many resources humans have used up that the world can replenish the earth can replenish in one year and so we're hitting that date it was august now it's back in july and it gets earlier and earlier every year because we're consuming more and more and we're adding more and more people every year i think one of the main lessons is that yes of course we need to make these adaptations to electric cars and renewable energy and eating vegan food and you know stopping with the livestock and that will up our carrying capacity for certain but i don't think it's going to be able to counteract a billion new people every 12 years so it took human beings 200,000 years to reach the first billion that happened in 1804 it then took us only 126 years to hit 2 billion that happened in 1930 then only 30 years to add the third billion 14 years to add the fourth billion which happened in the year i was born 1974 and then since then we've consistently added a billion people every 12 years the rate of growth has stayed consistent in that billion people every 12 years since 74 whether it slows down i mean i have hopes that it will but i think education and raising awareness is going to be a big part of that solution so i know for for my personal experience every time i get on an airplane or i'm traveling you know one of the first things people ask you is like oh what do you do do you have kids kids is like the second question i get asked and sometimes the first that's, that's the more u.s question isn't it in the uk it's always like what's your job very seldom will they ask you of kids but i've noticed that in the u.s people ask what do you do do you have children yeah, it's either the first or second question i get asked and now I, I answer the question now with um, no actually my husband and I are child free by choice and by adding those two little words at the end by choice that sort of opens it up for a discussion because then they realize like, oh, it's not because I wanted to have kids and I couldn't. It was actually a decision that I consciously made. And and that was all due to, you know, my university professor showing me that film. I've found that a lot of people are are very interested in the subject. And, you know, parents are, are saying, you know, when, when I had my four kids or whatever, I didn't realize that like population was a thing. I plan on talking to my kids about it. So it's a discussion I think we all need to have, whether you're a parent or you're not a parent, because the world is going to be a better place for the people who have had kids, their kids and their grandkids are going to have a better place if there's it's a less crowded planet. Everything will be better with less people. And we have no natural predators, obviously. This is the irony of our species. I mean, obviously, we've got disease and bacteria and things that can kill us off, but and our probably our diets. In fact, obviously, as you know, the biggest killer of humans in the US specifically is actually lifestyle and the way people eat. The irony is, is, is that when people start eating a more plant-based diet, they're going to live longer and they're going to be healthier. There'll be more people. So it's a kind of very, very strange paradox that we're actually kind of entering into. Regarding kind of population, it's really interesting that you kind of you're passionate about this and, and you're working on a documentary. We produce uh, YouTube videos. Um, we've got quite a big YouTube channel and we're often bombarded with conspiracy theorists who, who seem to 
kind of marry the vegan movement with this uh what they call population control really? which is kind of yeah from there but from there's a lot of people have you heard of age agenda 21 no. so there's this conspiracy theory that veganism is part of a global movement to control the population and they call it agenda 21 where they they feel that these people i think they're a pretty small group of people they're pretty <laughs> loud they believe that we are trying to control population in a in an incredibly sinister way by you know getting people to eat food that's going to cause them to live you know have health problems and die young the irony is obviously going on a plant-based diet you're probably going to live longer but but there is a look i mean i don't know if you're into conspiracy theories at all but it's hilarious that there's this kind of movement of people who believe that us vegan activists are actively trying to reduce the population for sinister reasons it's actually for very practical reasons as you pointed out so there's nothing sinister behind it but um, I'm, I'm amazed you haven't come across I it. I haven't. That is hilarious. I have actually had some some little spats with some some vegans online because there were vegans like saying how vegans need to have lots of kids so that we can like outbreed mm. the meat eaters. <laughs> that was just like <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. Like, can we please utilize right. some some like reasonable logical thought here? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's not yeah. the way to make the world go vegan. Like, why? don't you just convince the people that are already here on earth to go vegan you know and and i've started to become much more vocal about the population issue and i always also mention you know if you really want to be a parent there are 153 million orphan children in the world that are already here you know that need a home so there's always the ability to to be a parent to a, a child that's already here and is is homeless. I myself am a parent to three furry rescues. Um, so so I've gone the furry four legged child route. And 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 honestly, with all of my activism and and all of the work that I do, I, I I just it would not be possible. I would not be able to be driving a race car Daytona and making a documentary film. All these things if I had kids to take care of it would be an incredibly difficult balance to find and you know I already find that I'm I feel overworked and not enough time in the day and I I couldn't imagine how how people manage that so I'm working with a group actually in the UK called Population Matters um, that I joined in May of last year as a patron Sir David Attenborough is a patron, Jean Goodall. Um, so there's amazing people there working on these issues and trying to raise awareness about population. I think once people learn about it, I mean, I'm living proof of that, right? My professor spent one hour of class talking about population to me like 25 years ago when I was 20 years old. And I'm still thinking about it to the point where now, you know, I'm probably going to spend the next five years of my life making a documentary film about it. So I think when people become aware, it's just one of those things that you don't think about that much. It's just like veganism, right? If you've grown up your whole life eating meat and you just haven't registered like what it is, the effect of what you're putting on your plate and you haven't associated that piece of meat on your plate with the cruelty that's taking place to animals or the harm to our environment, you're just not thinking about it. It's just not on your radar. And I think a lot of the issue with the population is that it's just not on anybody's radar. Nobody's talking about it. You know, we've got shows here in the U.S. that are glorifying this family that had like 19 children, the Duggar family. They gave them their own reality show, you know, and it's it's just uh, the lack of awareness and the ability for people to only think about sh- the short term and not look at the long-term effects of all of this is astounding to me. I do feel like people are waking up, you know, about climate change now. It's it's becoming, you know, people can't deny climate change anymore. Um, we're losing our coral reefs. I think as these tragedies happen and as we lose these beautiful places like the Great Barrier Reef is bleaching, that is making people come to the realization like, oh, we really are you know, screwing this planet. We're in trouble. 86% bleach the coral of the Great Barrier Reef, one of the 
one of the jewels of our our natural world is uh, on the precipice of you know complete and utter destruction. How how frustrated do you feel, or are you frustrated by the kind of political uh, backpedaling or the kind of the situation the American people are in with a with a, a kind of leader who who is I mean uh, to put it in the most <laughs> polite possible way. Uh, <laughs> a clown, <laughs> I don't know, a, a person who, you know, a person who, who who clearly has no concept of the reality and the magnitude of the situation that. Oh, it is. I mean, it, it's honestly so frustrating to me. I can't. I can't even say his name. I actually have started to call him it because I just feel like he's not even human. He he. The the, the his inability to realize the the things that he's doing all all kinds of things from endangered species to rolling back fuel standards perpetuating this idiotic belief that like climate change isn't real it's so frustrating to me i can barely speak about him like i, I get so angry i just i, I try and avoid talking about him as much as I can. Right, right. I have high hopes that Fair things enough. are going to change in 2020. Mm. I can only hope, you know, if, if you look at it as like a pendulum, like the pendulum swung all the way one way. So hopefully it will swing all oh, the way yeah. back the other way. <laughs> it swung violently in the wrong <laughs> <Yes>. direction. <laughs> Very scarily. Now, now, obviously, there's many, there's many kind of theories as to how these, these kind of figures get into power. But there's one thing in common with all of these situations, you know, um, is social media. How do you feel about the power social media has for us with our message, but also the other side of the conversation? You know, um, meat consumption globally isn't going down, it's going up. Animal agriculture is incredibly powerful. They have so much money. They have more money. I mean, I think the number was, I think, don't quote me on this, but it's a hundred and something trillion dollars comes into the American economy via kind of animal agriculture and the, you know, you could say the animal agriculture industry is, you know, the, sorry, the U.S. Uh, economy is built on the backs of animals. I'd have to find the statistic, but it's something along those lines that this industry, which pervades every part of American society or any kind of most societies, is so ingrained within our culture as people Sometimes it's a kind of a, Goli- a Samson and Goliath situation, isn't it? And you think, how are we ever going to what we call the kind of carnistic paradigm? How are we ever going to kind of cut it out? You know, how are we ever going to remove it from our culture? I, I get frustrated with social media because, I mean, I, I do feel that that played a role in the way our election went. You know, I think there's been investigative pieces that have come out that have just really shocked me and disturbed me about some of the things that are, are going on. Uh, It's a, it's a tool where you can sort of choose to see what reality you want to see. Right. So like, if you look at my feed, you're going to see stuff about veganism and electric cars and solar panels and climate change and biodiversity and species extinction. Like you're going to see all the things that I'm interested in. Right. But then you could go to somebody else's feed and they're just choosing not to see that stuff. You know, they're choosing to see what they want to believe. And so in a way, we're all kind of creating this alternate reality because we're living online and we can choose what we look at. So we're all creating our own little version of what we want the world to be and what who we want to listen to and so then we're it's probably created more of a divide because we're isolating ourselves into like our own little echo chambers i mean that was one of the reasons why i did all of this education at the nascar tracks you know i was educating people about renewable energy and solar power and wind power driving my electric car to all the races so i could show the car to all the fans talking about vegan food i had blackfish and the cove on my race car so like I was taking it to a group of people that didn't agree with me. And that is truly, if you want to actually create change in the world, 
you have to talk to the people that don't agree with you. Because if you just run around talking about veganism at the vegan festivals, like you're not changing anything. It's an easier conversation to have. And it's fun because everybody's patting you on the back and saying what a great job you're doing, but you're not actually like making a difference. I always felt like I was making the most difference when I was at the track and I was sort of confronting a group of people that are not vegan and that are skeptical of my impossible burger and sort of, you know, not too sure what they think of me and, and what I'm talking about. And then when you win them over there, you're making real progress. Um, so I fear that social media has, you know, while I think there's really great things about it because it can sort of offer this, you know, there's backlash, right? If you, if, if you beat up one of your customers and drag them off your airplane, and somebody happened to get video of that and put it online, you know, there's like an instant sort of justice, right? Because people started to boycott the airline because they saw what they did. And so the airline has to then respond because it's immediately affecting their bottom line. So I think it can function in a really positive way, but I also think it's, it's causing us all to sort of see the version of reality that we want because so much of our lives are lived through a screen, and, and not actually interacting face-to-face -face with the world. How important is uh, mental health in your world, speaking of screens? Because obviously we're all becoming more and more connected to what we often call the black mirror. Mm. Have you ever seen the black mirror shows I on have. Netflix? Uh, so, the, you know, the black mirror to me is an incredible symbol of the modern world with this technology that we look at, but it's also looking back mm -hmm. at us. <laughs> it's watching us. It's listening. There are algorithms, there's cameras, there's microphones listening and watching and analyzing our behavior. But there's entire teams of people who are tasked with making these applications in the software even more addictive every single day because they want to keep us hooked. Now, Obviously, as someone who uses media and you're obviously involved in documentaries, how do we kind of fight against this, but at the same time, not shunning it completely? Because I think media is such a powerful thing to change hearts and minds, but we have such a bad relationship with media and technology. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, obviously for the racing and for the activism, you know, I had to be on social media, but after my Daytona race, I posted my race report and I, I took a break where I signed off for like a week and didn't do any posting. I think I'm going to dial it back a lot more, but yeah, I mean, the reality is when my documentary film comes out or when I'm working on it and I'm raising funds for it, I mean, you, you're forced into it. You can't choose to not participate because that's where most of the world lives. But I think, yeah, limiting the amount that we use it, I think you can just get sucked into it and just be in this never ending like news feed. You can like go through your whole Twitter feed and then be like, Oh, I'm now I'm going to switch to Instagram and then scrolling through that. I mean, you could just scroll for the rest of your life and like never go out of your house ever again. It's just, it's crazy. Cause we have, I mean, think about that. We can yeah. look at whatever the entire like knowledge base of the whole human race is sitting on a little, electronic device that can fit in your pocket and so like of course we're having more insomnia and like issues with um i, I mean I'm, I'm wondering like how this is going to affect the kids that are growing up in the society where it already is it's changing the shape of our brains our, our actually our ability or inability to relate to each other children are spending more time uh, on screens than they have ever done ever and obviously ever since screens appeared in human society and it's actually uh, what a lot of people feel like it's stunting uh, humans ability to interact with each other in real life children at school where they would normally have interactions with each other from an emotional physical level are doing everything over social media so all their interactions and all their discussions and conversations 80 percent of them are non-verbal you know, they're via text or, or um, emojis. And so the kind of humanity of our kind of relationships is slowly disappearing. You see couples sitting at restaurants, not talking to each other on their phones. Whenever there's a pause, people whip out their phone because they, they're afraid of silence or they're afraid of that 
that gap. And I think it's um, it's a it's a really really challenging and interesting time for humanity with our technology, like you say, with our population and our food. We are definitely living in interesting times. That's yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm really curious as to what will be the long term effects because we can't see that yet of of people growing up, you know, online. I mean, I re- I remember the first time I ever heard of email. I was in college. I, I didn't know it. You know, email was just starting to come out when I was in college at the college dorms at UCSD. So, like, the way that the world has changed in in and so quickly is very scary, and like you were saying, the, the microphones listening to us, the, ca- the camera looking back at us. There's a really good book I read about artificial intelligence. It's called Our Final Invention. Um, if you really want to get scared about <laughs> artificial intelligence and how things can go wrong, uh, this book, Our Final Invention, is fantastic. And it Our Final Invention. Our Final Invention. Yeah. Okay, I'll put it in the description of the podcast. So if anyone wants to read it, you can grab it on a website like As Amazon. As if we don't maybe. have enough things in the world to already worry about with like climate change and ocean acidification and species extinction. If you want another thing to worry about when you're laying in bed at night trying to sleep, read that book. Yeah, it's very scary. I mean, there's there's a lot of things changing about our world so quickly. I don't know. I don't know if things are going to go well or not. I'm definitely worried. So so speaking on the kind of hope for the future, have you got any advice or or kind of comments to people who want to get involved in activism of some kind? Have you got any tips and thoughts on what people directions people could take yeah i mean for me what i did was i just started volunteering with the organizations that i thought were doing good work there's so many great nonprofits out there i wish i could help all of them i'm on the board of three of them um oceanic preservation society empowered by light which is a, a group that brings solar into places in need and then the earth x film festival which airs um environmental documentaries that are like making a difference or trying to change things for the better. Um, and then I'm a patron of population matters an ambassador for Rico Berry's dolphin project. So there's, there's so many, and, and there's many more that I would love to be helping, but I just, you know, I only have so much time, so you can only really dedicate yourself to a few, but to find what it is that you're passionate about, there's so many issues on the, in the world that need good people helping to make things better. So I think pick whichever one is like your passion, whatever thing is like going to be something that you can fight for, for years to come. And, and you would fight for it. Even if you're not getting paid to do it, if it's in your spare time, something that you're, you truly care about and maybe is the thing that keeps you awake at night and dive into that. Find the groups that are doing good things, seek them out, ask them how you can help. I think documentary film is a really powerful way to change people. I myself am like a documentary junkie. I watch all of them you know, since I've now like starting to work on them. I'm studying them as well. I think it's a great place where we actually do shut off our phones and we do disconnect from our text messages and our Twitter accounts and our Instagram. And you just, you have an audience's attention for like 90 minutes, which is so rare in today's society. It seems like people's attention spans are shorter and shorter and shorter. And so I, that's, that's why I really feel like film is a place where a lot of change can happen because you can have somebody that's like a big time meat eater and then you can get them to sit down and watch what the health or forks over knives or racing extinction and have them go vegan by the end of the movie in 90 minutes. It, it, the question is, how do you get people to sit down and watch those documentaries? Cause not everybody's interested in documentaries. I mean, you mentioned racing extinction. It was pretty amazing. We had, I think 35 or 36 million people watch the film in one night on discovery channel when it aired around the world. And that's a huge number of people for an environmental documentary, but you know, 36 million people when there's 7.6, billion in the world is a very small number and and people tend to you know want to go see like batman and (laughs) the avengers movies and they're not you know they're not maybe interested in the documentary so while i feel like documentaries can be really effective in changing people um one of the things that i'm actively thinking about now is 
how do you get those people that are not documentary junkies like me to want to sit down and watch a documentary film? Um, and I don't have the answer to that, but hopefully I will come five years from now when the film comes out. I had a theory on that, which I did try uh, on a very short, because I'm also a, f- a filmmaker as myself, and I've done a few short films, and we intermingled fiction with documentary. So we did a documentary, a short called Swine, which is about antibiotic resistance, um, and talking about how you know these these drugs are used on farms, on factory farms, and they're actually causing and creating these superbugs. What we did was we juxtaposed a fictional piece uh, alongside a documentary. They kind of like blended into each other. And so the fictional element was kind of a hook. It's a way to kind of get people into the documentary because the whole documentary had like a poster and everything that made it um, look like a zombie film, like Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> I'll send it to you. I'd love to hear what you think of it. It's it's only my second ever film, so it's I'm still new at it. But um, I think it's quite good to you kind of draw people in with a bit of imagination and then hit them with the hard truth. I think that always it can always be um, a good oh, method. I'd love to see it. I, you know, I think Okja, did you see the film Okja? Yeah. I, I think I that one actually probably created a lot of vegans. We needed a miracle. And then we got one. This beautiful and special little creature will be a revolution in the livestock industry. Our super pigs will not only be big and beautiful, they will also leave a minimal footprint on the environment, consume less feed, and produce less excretions. And most importantly, they need to taste fucking good. There were so many people that watched it just as a film that was going to be entertainment, and then at the end, they they get mm. the message. Um, I had a realization. Yeah, really effective. Uh, yeah. I love, um, I love that film, and I think that is a really effective way of changing people. So maybe shoot, maybe I shouldn't be working on a documentary. Maybe I should be working on writing a feature film that will have actors, but have the, be, the message. You could do that after. <laughs> <laughs> things keep it in the background and then you could maybe run something right. after that yeah so before i let you go uh, i always like to ask my guests this question if you were stranded on a desert island uh, and there was a pig you know the pig oh, you know that joke yes, about the desert the island and pig the pig? and the desert island i've heard this before uh-huh however you're obviously a vegan you're not going to eat the pig <laughs> but if you're stuck there and i could give you one book one music album and one vegan dish and that's all you had what would you take with you uh, okay, I'd probably go with the doors for the album. So the dish, is it just one dish or can it just be like one vegetable that I can make a million different ways? <laughs> clever, clever. <laughs> I think one dish. <laughs> uh, okay, one dish. It would be my very favorite meal, which I ate consistently the whole time I lived in California was a potato burrito. It was like a spicy potato, like kind of mashed potato, but with spices in it. And then it had lettuce and wrapped in a tortilla and with a little bit of um, hot sauce. And I could eat that for the rest of my life every day for the rest of my life and be happy. And then um, what was the other thing? A movie? A book, a book. book. Oh, that is a tough one. Gosh, a book that I could read over and over. Maybe the um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams. Amazing, (laughs) wonderful. The answer to life is forty (laughs) two. I love that. Before we say goodbye, how can everyone find you and uh, follow your progress and everything you're doing with the film and uh, your future adventures? Um, So my website is just Leilani.green and I'm on three social medias right now. I by far am the most active on Twitter um, and it's just my name at Leilani Muncher. Same with Instagram and same with Facebook, but I probably use them in that order. First Twitter, then Instagram, then Facebook. And I'm really... Yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to start dialing that back because of what we talked about. I feel like screen time has to be downgraded for all of us. So like, you know, the pendulum shift we were talking about with politics, maybe humanity is on like a pendulum shift towards social media right now, but maybe like the pendulum's about to backtrack the other way. Mm, I certainly hope so. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the PBM podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to talk to you and I look forward to watching your film. Thank you. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie. We'll be back next week with more veganism, health, fashion, technology, and everything in between. Mm-hmm.